and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber, and this is a sponsored episode. Uh, So thank you very much to our listener, Rosie, who sent us a donation um, a while ago. Um, And this message... (laughs) (laughs) We really are getting to all of our... we are outstanding We're... episode and you are all outstanding yes um quote please can you do an episode about wine and archaeology and or anthropology i would love a We're mention of, i would love a mention of the vix crater uh, or maybe weeks or we it's vix because i'm extremely obsessed with the vix crater but otherwise i'm happy with anything maybe also underwater wine the underwater wine is so neat end quote yeah, well, Rosie, you got it. Uh, also, at first, I thought, oh, yeah, underwater wine. That's wine found in shipwrecks. And that's, ex- that's exactly what I expected to pop up when I Googled underwater wine. Yeah, like, like amphorae and stuff. Yeah, but I found something else. And I think this might actually be what Rosie was referring to. And I hope so, because it's weird. <laughs> and I want to talk about it. <laughs> it's not weird. It's it's um, interesting. And uh, that's what I put in the script. So, Rosie, I hope that's what you meant. Wow, what a vague teaser. Um, so Thank I guess you. we'll have to let that one breathe for a bit. Oh, the, That makes the it sound like it's bad. Be... That makes it sound like it's it's bad and you like decant you should always it. Let, no, you should always let wine breathe for a little bit. For a little bit. But if it's, but if it's bad wine, you're like, just let just, it breathe let's more. Let's run this through that thing that I got off of uh, Sky Mall <laughs> that like aerates your wine aggressively. <laughs> oh did you think that was sound design listeners that was just amber doing some incredible foley work oh great i hope it comes through because uh listeners should know i've been well patrons will know that i've that i was at anna's house um and now Uh, i'm not at anna's house but unfortunately guess what still is (laughs) one of my cables is at anna's house so now i'm just yelling at my computer we're independent (laughs) <laughs> sorry <laughs> let's let those notes develop but at the moment rosie we're gliding up to your table proffering this episode label out and assuring you that it pairs exceptionally well with whatever you've got going on so let's get uncorked and start with a brief time wine <laughs> <laughs> it's it's great like i have the script in front of me but i misread it as wine time and i was like eh, okay but then you said it and uh, it's a good joke. It's a great joke. Turns out, okay, we're gonna we're gonna kind of jump back and forth a little bit because we're gonna go a lot earlier than this um, in a little bit. But for our purposes right now, we're starting in the Paleolithic, a single Eurasian grape species, Vitis vinifera, is the basis for ninety nine percent of the grape based wine made around the world today. Even though there are about a hundred species of grape out there. And so I'm going to quote here from a book called Ancient Wine oh. by Patrick McGovern. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know that name. Yeah. Uh, so we've, we've talked about him before. Our, our one, like episode four, three? If, if no, that, yeah. Very early. Um, our very, you know, very early days, we talked about wine and cheese and Patrick McGovern's name came up a lot. He studies sort of ancient residues and reconstructs um, he's a, ways he's in a, which people. He's the booze guy. He's a. He's the yeah, he's booze guy. guy. He's the he's the booze residue guy. Residues of booze. Yeah. Oh. So in chapter one of Ancient Wine, under the heading Man Meets Grape, the Paleolithic Hypothesis, quote, the wild Eurasian grapevine grows today throughout the temperate Mediterranean basin from Spain to Lebanon, inland along the Danube and Rhine rivers, around the shores of the Black Sea and the southern Caspian Sea, at the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and farther east in the oases of Central Asia. This distribution is likely only a shadow of what prevailed some 50 million years ago in warmer times, leading up to the most recent ice age in quaternary times, starting about 2.5 million years ago. Pockets of the wild Eurasian grape managed to survive the four cold, dry spells of this ice age in lower-lying valleys and plains, end quote. So, as, you know, around that time, roughly speaking, because it's a big old span of time, so as Homo sapiens... (laughs) Around. (laughs) As Homo sapiens moved out of Africa, 
Some groups could have, and in fact did, uh, make their way up the land bridge of the Sinai Peninsula and into Western Asia slash the Middle East. Um, Just where the Neanderthals ate all but 50 of them. No. I'm so sorry that this is the thing that I remember of like (laughs) four years of this show is a thing that a man made up. I'm so sorry to you and all our listeners. (laughs) But yes. Go on. Anyway, (laughs) up past the Sinai Peninsula, they would have certainly encountered wild grapevines. At some point, they were all over the place. And if they saw animals and birds eating the grapes, they likely would have eaten them too. But also, they might well have noticed that birds and other critters especially enjoyed eating the fruit when it had fallen from the vines and was fermenting on the ground. If human, this is so. This is summing up the the Paleolithic hypothesis of like why humans seek out alcohol and like how wine started. So if humans really enjoyed grapes, they very well may have collected lots of them to eat later, perhaps storing them in a basket or bag. As those grapes got a bit squashy and ripened more, the natural yeast that collects on wild fruit would have started doing yeasty things to the sugars in those squashed grapes. And a byproduct of yeast consuming sugars is alcohol. So there's no way to directly confirm this hypothesis yet because materials that baskets and bags would have been made of, like woven grasses and hides, don't preserve super well from that long ago. Um, Ceramic vessels, as far as we know, weren't really part of the material record yet. So Yeah. Yep. You know, it's tough to find evidence of of deliberate fermentation. Before the pre-pottery Neolithic is the... (laughs) Definitely not pottery yet. (laughs) Paleolithic. Yeah. Yeah. That we know of. Like maybe they yeah. were using ceramics that like weren't fired, but they oh, yeah, were absolutely. dried. Yeah. yeah. It's like there's it's just it's hard to know. So I wanna I want to take a brief digression here. So this is where we're jumping from the Paleolithic way farther back in time. Because it turns out further back. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. So um the ability to metabolize alcohol. Yes. Because uh, alcohol is to to many species a poison. Uh, not not too many, you know, humans have the ability to metabolize it. And that is something that occurred somewhere along the timeline, timeline of human evolution. And so let's talk about why that might have been an evolutionary advantage. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know this. What? Well, let me tell everybody. What? Uh, no, I don't. So I haven't around, read it. <laughs> okay. So uh, between 12 and 10 million years ago. So that's, that's again really big span of time but that's in in broad strokes that's about when the great apes split off from gibbons the lesser apes yes okay. it seems like a value judgment but it's not they're just smaller so around 12 to 10 million years ago a gene mutation arose that made it much easier 40 times easier in fact increased our ability 40 fold for primates to metabolize alcohol but not the but not that, the ga- but not the gibbons don't be giving them alcohol. That is such a tragedy because they got those, like, they'd be so good on the dance floor if you got them, oh, yeah. like, a little Arms toasted. for days, but they, they do that anyway. They don't need, they don't need I'm proving alcohol. it right now. They you don't need alcohol to do it. Just vibes. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to stop doing my giving dance. I swear. I swear. <laughs> I'm going to teach you things. So the fact that we human primates can still metabolize alcohol means that the genetic mutation has survived for millions of years, which suggests extremely strongly that it presented some kind of adaptive advantage. That's how natural selection works. If a gene sticks around, it's either neutral or it does something positive. So in this case, it's 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 not net negative. Correct. Being able to metabolize alcohol. This isn't planet of the gibbons. Planet of the lesser apes. Not yet. (laughs) um Um, so let's think about what those advantages might be so there are there are four kind of main ones you ready yeah one the process of fermentation breaks down sugars and starches meaning that overripe fruit is very calorie dense those calories are very accessible to you if you eat them number two which kind of goes with number one the mutation that that mutation that made it easier for us to metabolize alcohol occurred around the same time as a major climate shift and extinction phase. So resources became very, very scarce. There was a a move towards a much more uh, drier, cooler climate. And 
in a resource-poor environment, animals who have a metabolic advantage, like the ability to eat fermented fruit without being poisoned, like being able to process that poisonous alcohol, will have a better shot at survival. So like that gene would get passed on to offspring. Number three. That's that's also how I dealt with a few periods in which I was in resource-poor environments in my life. Sure. Sure. I mean, well, that brings us to numbers three and four. Alcohol consumption releases endorphins. So with a lot of caveats, chill primates are healthier primates. So like like if there is a way to, um, (laughs) if there's a way to, obviously, if you go too far in one direction, you become a blacked out primate. And, you know, that's not, that's not an advantage. But to some extent, if... Um, consuming alcohol allows you to have endorphins to release some stress. You know, that's that's beneficial overall to your health. Okay. And then finally, experiencing those alcohol-induced endorphins with a social group might strengthen social ties, which is one of the big parts of, I think, why humans um, succeeded as well as they do. At least that's, that's some of the consensus is like yeah. we're really good at social bonds well, and that, that, although that is, is... A, uh, helps survival. That is a incredibly space alien description of like a lot of the traditions that you and I participated in in college. Yep. Hey, okay. I ha- we we can process alcohol and we can process our feelings. <laughs> so that's that's my uh, evolutionary digression. That's so 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 fascinating. We're back to the Paleolithic, but so, and then let's so, but move it, forward. But it actually like could it be just neutral? Could it just be what it is and just like uh huh. It just happened. It's possible, but it seems it seems like it's. I mean, given like the like the uh, the addition of the bits about being able to uh, digest and metabolize, yeah, yeah, yeah. food like that that's would, the, like that's the it's it, not. that that is like that to me is more compelling mm-hmm. than like sometimes it's nice Fans. to vibe, yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, well, they, they were sort of in order of compelling. Yeah, 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 yeah. My points there. This okay. Decreasing so twelve order. to ten million years ago. Mm-hmm. It's when that genetic mutation occurred. The actual deliberate fermentation of things occurs much later. But this, so this isn't deliberate. But, but this is like this, seeking out. This is not like other species are able to metabolize alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Which yeah, and and other species do it quite well. It's yeah. just that okay. So but for we're some, spe- for, for many species, specifically primates, it's sort we're of a it. we're, we're it used the to be best poison. at it. Yeah. Well, because like I don't know the deer. I bet an elephant could drink me under a table. The the deer outside seem to be pretty good at metabolizing it. Yeah, what are they eating that's fermented apples? Uh, uh, there's an apple tree. There's a yeah. a bunch of drunk deer out there. It's actually a um, it's a a heritage apple that is going I love extinct. A heritage apple. It's um, it's ah, like a specific Appalachian seeds. one. I know. I I want to call them and be like. Do you want do you guys part know? of my tree like to graft it? Yeah. I yeah, keep yeah. meaning to to find like a context. If you if you know who is responsible for preserving the early transparent heirloom apples? Heirloom Appalachian apples, tell them about me. <laughs> the dirt podcast at gmail.com. Uh let us know. They're they're not good like eating apples. They're good for like um, like stewing and, cider. and applesaucing oh, yeah, okay. or cider. Yeah, cider. They're, apparently they're good at that. Um, but we don't. Oh, that was Johnny Appleseed's whole deal. Cider, cider apples. That's why he planted all those apple orchards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, not for so eating. This this was this was a farm in the orchard. The remains of the orchard is mm. out back of my house, and uh, they the deer have been partaking. Oh, they do every year, and we like kind of try to like clean them up because it like it gets rowdy. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh-huh. I get it. <laughs> so Yeah, so you know, chill chill deer. Yeah. So now we're now we're back kind of at the Paleolithic okay. and moving forward. Back in to time. the Paleolithic. So almost 10 to 12 million years later. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um okay. So once we get a bit further along the timeline, uh there's actual evidence for wine um to to go on, which is great. Yeah. Is, like the deliberate fermentation into a beverage. That's yeah. what that's what I'm calling. Not like a here. oh, didn't kill us kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and I feel funny. 
And I'm not dead. (laughs) The two generally accepted markers for winemaking are, one, the presence of domesticated grapes, and two, evidence of grape processing. So for the domestication part, I'm going to pull from a 2019 article on ThoughtCo by archaeologist K. Chris Hurst. Quote, the main mutation incurred during the domestication process of grapes was the advent of hermaphroditic flowers, meaning that the domesticated forms of grapes are capable of self-pollination. Grapes doing it for themselves. Thus, vintners can pick tricks traits they like and as long as the vines are kept on the same hillside they need not worry about cross-pollination changing next year's grapes the discovery of parts of the plant outside its native territory is also accepted evidence of domestication the wild ancestor of the european wild grape which is vitus vinifera silvestris grape in the woods (laughs) um no silvestris that's silver of the woods. No, it's not. Sylvestris is wild or of the woods. Oh, it's ever. Ar- Argentum. Yep, thanks. Cut that mm. out. Sure. <laughs> All credibility gone. <laughs> it's native to Western Eurasia between the Mediterranean and Caspian Seas. Thus, the presence of V. vinifera outside its normal range is also considered evidence of domestication. End. Sorry. End quote. <laughs> I'm sorry. I got, I was distracted because I was thinking about um, in Dirt After Dark where the evidence like Noah couldn't have landed on Mount Ararat because like Armenia sucks for growing wine. <laughs> it's like, because like, we know one. Noah planted a vineyard and grapes don't grow there. Which, they actually like, do. Is... They sure do. So what does that evidence say? The real evidence, not. Mm-hmm. That not, evidence. That was arc. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I, I heard you asking that, listeners, and I, I'll, I'll now tell you. It's likely that the domestication of grapes took place during the Neolithic period from somewhere around 8,500 to 4,000 BCE. A range. Um, a range. And that was in the region between the Black and Caspian Seas. Anna knows where this is now after Dirt After Dark. Um, after extremely <laughs> not knowing. <laughs> I'm so bad at geography. Um, and Shameful. so today that that region uh, reflects the, the contemporary political states of Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. Um, so take that, Sir Walter Raleigh. <laughs> Side sure. note, it's extremely likely that, ooh, fermented juice is fun, happen in several different places independently at different times, especially since we've been so good at digesting alcohol for millions of years. We've possibly, yeah, we've been, we've been on that since before we were since people. Yeah. Since gorillas. (laughs) Uh, So there's, uh, we've talked about this before. There's evidence of some kind of fermented fruit and rice beverage um, at the Neolithic Chinese site of Jahu which dates from around 7,000 to 6,600 BCE. Grape seeds were also found there, which is a good sign. Yep. You got <laughs> farm-to-table grape, um, yeah, along yeah. with hawthorn seeds, and both of those fruits can be fermented. Yeah, so we don't know for sure if it was a grape-based beverage, but it was like rice and some fruit mm-hmm. and honey and, and yeah. then, you know, fermented. So like, yeah, mm? Okay. Um, However, the oldest available archaeological evidence for grapes definitely being deliberately turned into alcohol comes from wine-saturated ceramic sherds found at two sites near modern-day Tbilisi, uh, which is in Georgia. And I did know how to say it before. The... I didn't. Okay. I didn't, well, so I put it. a pronouncer there and I was like... This is that part of the world that you just found out about. <laughs> it's not that I just found out about it. I just... Look, my my knowledge cannot be all-encompassing i'm always learning <laughs> always learning yeah so always some of learning. those shirts dated by radiocarbon to around 6000 bce were reassembled into jars and some of those they fit jar- into jars they weren't just like look i can make it into the shape of a jar <laughs> they were refitted i've definitely attempted that i feel like oh, <laughs> make like, a jar no, they're different thicknesses <laughs> like, <laughs> ah field work um 
So, okay, they were reassembled into the jars that they once were. (laughs) Um, And some of those jars were emblazoned with stamped logos that looked like bunches of grapes. Handy. It's like the the Ray Dunn of the 7th millennium BCE. (laughs) Grapes. Wine time. (laughs) No, it's just like grapes. Oil. Yeah, so that's that's really handy. That's great. So they went in when it's they went great. into their little pantry. They'd be like, get the grapes. This one has the grapes on it. <sighs> There's also good evidence for winemaking from residue and ceramic jars from the site of Haji Firuz Tepe in modern day Iran. That was the title holder for oldest wine evidence for quite some time since the site was first excavated in 1968. But the evidence from China, which is 9,000 years old, and Georgia, which is 8,000 years old, shows that by the time folks at Haji Firuz Tepe were sipping their wine, people had been turning fruit into festive beverages for quite a long time already. Uh, so mm-hmm. now it gets to be one of those like very specific, like oldest, like yeah, like oldest, if you care about oldest that kind wine of, in like... Southwestern Asia. <laughs> yeah, kind all of the thing. qualifiers. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of vessels for holding wine, as requested, that brings us to the Vix Crater. So, Amber, are you familiar with the Vix or any other craters? Um, so the Vix Crater is what I get out every year when I get like bronchitis and like a sinus infection. <laughs> a giant tub of Vix vapor rub. Yeah. Um, uh, but no, I don't know. Like that. I don't know diddly about the Vix crater, but oh, I do great. know that other craters are well, crater is a type is is like a um one of the like sort of main categories of of Greek or like classical um ceramics and so a crater in this is, case it is greek yeah yeah so a uh, crater is uh the greeks loved having things of different shapes to what? do specific it's, things having to do with wine it's like a it's well, a rather wide mouth open vessel mm-hmm. with a, like a pedestal is that and like yeah. sort of a, it, yeah, like, a volute crater yeah, yeah. so it's got a little pedestal and um, it's a big pot for holding wine yeah and i i thought i thought of craters recently because i um, was trying That's to describe is. something like some houseware to someone to a, like a normal person in my life, and I was like, "Yeah, it's like a crater," and they're like, what? "That's not helpful <laughs> like, to me." Mm. Um, yeah, so I am familiar with the crater Perils of a classical education. I know. Yeah, <laughs> I just wanted to be educated. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, but I don't know anything about the Vix crater. Don't know anything ah. about Vix. Is Vix a place? Is Vix a person? Did Vix paint the crater? Uh, Allow me to tell you. Okay. So even if you're not familiar, Amber, with the Vix crater, Paul Lewis is, or he was, he was a correspondent for the Paris office of the New York Times. And in 1984, he wrote a lengthy piece on the Vix crater that I will excerpt here. We will have this linked on the show notes, listeners, but because it's the New York Times, you do have to subscribe to view it. It's free, but you will get endless emails from the New York Times. To, to view articles, you can like you can give them your email, and then you get a certain number of free oh, yeah. you, articles yeah. per month. Yeah, like you've, you okay, can. fine, yes, okay, it is possible. Don't hit refresh. Um, Don't. Yeah, because <laughs> there goes another. And one. I'm sorry about okay. all the emails. Just wanted to make make it clear that <laughs> quote I pay for your New York Times subscription. <laughs> Herodotus, the Greek historian, your boy, boy. tells of a bronze jar or crater so big that it could hold 300 amphorae of wine, the equivalent of nearly 300 gallons. What does that tell us about the volume of an amphora? It's about a gallon? (laughs) It's about two liters. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Two liters of Such a crater, says Herodotus. (laughs) So he said uh, that kind of crater. That, that beak was made by the bronze smiths of Sparta for the fabulously rich King Croesus of Lydia, who reigned from 560 to 546 BCE, about a century before Herodotus did any writing. Yeah. So for years, presumably the years And Croesus' after... whole thing was being rich. I mean, he yeah. like, he had like an entire, he had like, he That's did stuff, thing. but he's rich only as known Croesus. for being rich. Yeah. yeah. Um, so for years... Modern students of Greek history laughed off the tale of the huge vessel as a typical piece of Herodotean exaggeration. 
<laughs> along with creatures, the, along with the big boats on the Nile and, and the the ants mining gold. No, see, I was I was naming things that have I been know. proven, and you ruined it. Are there ants that mine gold? Mm-hmm. No, no. But listen to our Herodotus episode. For, that was your birthday one. I think it's a it good was, one. Yeah. I really like that one. Um, um I'm going to continue with Polyus's okay. Craters were decorated bronze pots in which the ancient Greeks mixed water with their syrupy wine before That's drinking right. it. Yeah. Many such vessels have been found, but they are only a fraction of the size of the one Herodotus mentions and were clearly intended to stand in the middle of a dining table. So like the one he's describing is big enough to just stand on the floor and just yeah. be like mid torso height. They served yeah. as a punch bowl, allowing feasters to ladle the wine into cups. One cold January morning in 1953, near the village of Vix in the Burgundy region of France, great wine region, René Geoffroy, a local archaeologist, scratched away at some mud at a site he was excavating and found a grinning gorgon sticking her tongue out at him from the handle of an immense bronze jar. Monsieur Geoffroy had discovered the crater of Vix, the Vix Crater, the largest known vessel from the ancient world and one that corresponds exactly in size, age, and magnificence, according to Paul Lewis, to the jar Herodotus described. However, whether this crater really is the lost vessel the historian refers to will probably never be known, end quote. So So, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, given that Lydia, which is in ancient Lydia, yeah, ancient Lydia, which is in Asia, Asia Minor. Um, mm. not near France. No, <laughs> extremely not near France. First of all, we're going to get to connections between okay. It just like Asia wasn't Minor and and France. We're not saying that Croesus of Lydia was hanging out in France and had his crater there. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that the idea of something that big, a wine vessel that big, was like, come on, no way. And then one was I'm actually sorry. Found. I'm sorry. Had no students of the classics ever seen like <laughs> the the giant roadside giant things of this great nation and the nation yeah, of Australia. No. Like, yeah. This is like people love big stuff. <laughs> this, this is like, oh, let's do an episode on the big stuff. Oh like, wait. That's in my book. <laughs> hey, I wrote a book sort of the logical end of the Anglosphere. It's like Mm -hmm. giant, (laughs) like wastes of fiberglass. Um, And I love them all. Yeah. So tell me about, okay. Wow. So I want you, there's a a link that I've put for you there. And listeners, this will be in the show notes. This is a 3D model of the Vix crater. You can zoom in on it. Amber, it might take a second to load. So while you are looking at this model of the Vix crater. So zoom in on the top of it where the like the mouth of it is because that's where all the decoration is. And so I'm going to quote Oh from not Paul inside Lewis. it. Okay. No, 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 no. Like... Not in. No, like around the neck of, uh-huh. of it. Uh-huh. Um so I'm quoting from Paul Lewis to describe it. Yeah, you're doing a Gorgon face. You are apotropaying yeah. all of the all of the things. So quote well, horses look two like gray handles. What? I mean no shots. But they look like greyhounds. Um, Who? The, the horsies. Yeah. Well, you know. Quote, two handles rise well above the lip, each in yeah. the form of a ferocious looking gorgon with protruding tongue and legs that turn to curling serpents. Oh, Around do. the neck of the crater marches a frieze of ancient Greek warriors, in this case, hoplites, uh, on their way to battle. So I want to pause here because remember how I said that... Um, Herodotus called the uh, Croesus crater. He said that Spartan smiths made it. Yeah. In this case, the soldiers are dressed as like Spartan warriors. They're nude. So that's interesting. They are nude, except for the the With helmet. The nice hair. Yeah. yeah. The great hair and, the and shield. nude. Shield that helps. would be yeah. steal his look. <laughs> be mm, nude. Don't have great hair. <laughs> Some stride forward on foot, carrying huge circular shields, I while others this. ride in little chariots. Behind on, giant greyhounds. All wear high-plumed helmets with big cheek guards. Each figure was cast by the lost wax method, meaning it was modeled individually. Displayed separately from the crater is its perforated lid with a statue of a goddess in the center. So, end quote. Um, 
these figures, these were modeled separately and then attached. They were like shipped and then attached as appliques after. And we know this because each of the figures is marked with a tiny little Greek letter and a corresponding place on the vessel is marked with that same letter. So it was like Ikea directions, but for a massive bronze jar. I like the idea. And then you've got like the Gorgon being like, I don't know, and then getting like one of her sisters to help. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, the, the thing with the legs is really, uh, freaking me out because the way that, I mean, she's, well, she's the serpent legs on the Gorgon. Yeah, she, yeah. It's just like, she has bust and then legs. Um, but it is a, it is <laughs> Where's a, that tummy? she's got no tummy, but this is, um, oddly reminiscent of the Starbucks logo and the, like yeah, the mermaid. The, um, she's not a mermaid. She's a, oh, what is she? She's a something else. It's got a bifurcated tail and it's called something else. We talked about this in our Manimals episode and I don't remember, but it will occur to me and I will probably yell out the name while you're talking okay, at well, some it's point not, in this it's episode. A, okay, fine. It's on a Merson, so whatever. Uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. this is, I love this. Sketchfab. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Very, very cool. Okay, sure. This is... <laughs> reading the script directly okay sure so this is a big beautiful greek wine jar uh but it was found in a burial in france in weeks why <laughs> that burial <laughs> along with the many luxury objects it contained tells a really interesting story about the trade connections social structure and what the world was like around 2500 years ago in that area um the <laughs> it's okay i if you need any french pronunciation i will do french uh the vix burial is at the foot of mount le soie le soie le soie le soie mm-hmm. a massive celtic hill fort an oppidum yeah, the modern it, which is the latin word for hill fort <laughs> <laughs> uh the modern town is chatillon sur seine in the cote d'or <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep in the golden coat region um so coast chatillon sur seine is like big old fort on the river yeah and Côte, Côte d'Or is the the gold the golden gold coast. coast yeah not that not the african one oh i was thinking of the queensland one i'm back to my <laughs> i'm back to my giant things was uh, this was this in queensland <laughs> nope no. Uh, the nearby port of Marseille was once Massalia, an ancient Greek colony founded around 600 BCE. Greeks in France. <laughs> Greek. Uh, this was a hub of trade between the Greeks and the Celts and other, other people uh, for over 100 years. So 10 from mines in Cornwall, as well as furs, amber... And other trade goods from northerly regions passed through the port on the way to the Peloponnese. Uh, took me a second because it was the Peloponnese. <laughs> Peloponnese. Uh, also, a Meliocene is a mermaid with two tails. Meliocene. Oh yeah, that Meliocene. was. Yeah, that was like right on the so tip of your tongue. Tip I'm of sure. my tongue. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Googled it. <laughs> So things at Massalia were evidently especially hubtacular around 500 BCE when a woman referred to by Paul Lewis as a Celtic princess uh, died at approximately 30 years of age. She was buried with a wealth of worldly possessions, including this big old pot for big old wine. So who was she? Uh, So uh, like the world's like first wine wine aunt is... It's my auntie juice. <laughs> X-rays have actually shown that live, laugh, love in Greek is on the side of the Vix. That's not true. I'm so sorry. That's not true. That's, That's not, not true. true. So recent, as of 2019, excavations at the Hill Fort, Opidum, and some newer analyses mm-hmm. of the remains excavated that had been excavated in 1953 have determined that the Adam de Vix uh, wasn't local. Mm-mm. She doesn't even go here. Instead, she probably <laughs> she grew there. up closer to Germany's Black Forest. Yeah. 
Du Schwarzwalder. So given her non-local origin and the richness of the items she was buried with, it's possible that this was a high-ranking woman of a neighboring or regional Celtic tribe that traveled to Massalia for a marriage. So we're using marriage as shorthand here, but like, I don't think she like felt, I don't think she eat, pray, loved over there. Um, Probably not. No, she, it probably stands for whatever Plenty that. Plenty of Celts in the sea. <laughs> whatever that specifically meant in her culture. So mm-hmm. it like, and maybe she wasn't, maybe she wasn't we, handed not, off in a transaction. Even, yeah, we like don't kind have of any sense yeah. of her agency in this. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so this kind of alliance was and has been a common practice in many parts of the world through time as a way to solidify the relationships between polities. Um, so it can be within a community uh, among communities or like statecraft kind of thing. Or yeah. maybe nah, maybe her story was totally different. <laughs> There's hard to know. Literally no way to know. Yeah. Uh, so we, we can't know that. Uh, at present, but what we do know is that she certainly benefited from trade between Greece and Celtic tribes. She was buried with a heavy gold diadem or of, of Greek or Syrian origin, Etruscan rings, and Iron Age Celtic brooches, and of course, the Vix Crater. Um, mm-hmm. Super cool. Wow. Yeah, the Vix Crater is really interesting. And I didn't know at all that Marseille was a greek colony to start off massalia that's what i will be calling it now massalia yeah okay uh well now for something a bit different but it's still mine need to get my vix crater i'm getting awful congested oh no let's talk about chocoli or chocolina which is a white wine of basque origin and so i i got into this thinking like oh basque wine is really interesting and the Basque culture is super interesting. And then you're like, this oh, episode they're cheesecake. A- and then <laughs> okay, this is really good. Um, no, I I started here and then didn't end up where I expected. So here we go. Production and consumption of chocolate are very closely tied to Basque identity and culture. I was doing some light googling of Basque wine because I knew it as a cultural touchpoint of Basqueness and little else. So that led me to an interesting article written in 2019 by Carrie Lesh, who is a certified specialist of wine, CSW. Uh, Maybe more relevant, she holds a PhD in Basque studies. So I trust her in this case. The article, Anthropomorphizing Wine in Our Current Climate, brought the idea of noble grape varieties to my attention. And I found it really interesting. So this episode is going to wander down that garden path and related side garden paths vineyard for paths. a little bit. Vine- We're wandering yeah. down vineyard paths. Oh, that sounds lovely. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start us off with some short excerpts from Dr. Lesh's article. Quote, the grapes cultivated to make chocolina are indigenous. The signature varieties are not the familiar noble varieties ubiquitous in other winemaking parts of the world. The bracing taste these grapes impart is often described with words reflecting its terroir, such as briny, refreshing, and green. Um, Basque, is, Basque country is coastal. <laughs> it is? Yes. Okay. It's okay. It straddles the border between France and Spain on the coast of the Bay of Biscay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I guess I thought it was in the mountains and that's how they managed to retain their um their language. There are so mountains long. sort of between there and No, I mean Spain. I thought they were like It's kind of a mix. It's kind of like Calabria where it's like mountain and sea. I just thought yeah. they were hard to get at. Well, some Basque locals also depict Chacolina as a challenging wine due to its previously rustic and unusual taste profile, echoing the common stereotyping of the Basque language, Euskara, as one of the most difficult to learn or comprehend. Hard to get at. In the wine industry, that uh, sound like I've been in the wine industry. Hmm. In the wine industry, we anthropomorphize wine and grapes in all kinds of ways, particularly when it comes to language. I often had to hold back a giggle in wine classes when hearing this fermented grape juice described as muscular, approachable, brooding, racy, flamboyant, 
elegant, and even intellectually satisfying. Just like talking about me. Ah, end quote. So in the wine world, which we're now in, yeah, welcome to wine world, the noble grape varieties refer to Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, and Riesling. So those are like some of the most common grapes that wines are made from. I find a lot of them very pedestrian. But it's worth realizing that there are other varieties and other wine traditions out there. The language around wine and wine tasting can often come with a whiff of snobbery, notes of top notes of snobbery. And that aspect of wine culture, whatever that means, interested me anthropologically. So, Amber, I wanted us to dig a little bit into the anthropology and aesthetic of wine language. Oh, great. Are there scholarly articles out there about this? You bet there are. I read a couple of them. Uh, But I also learned a new word. Termhood. Did did you? Did you learn this word? (laughs) I learned that it was a word for that this thing, which is, if you Google it, it's defined unhelpfully as the degree to which a stable lexical unit is related to some domain-specific concepts. So I'm going to translate that to... Whether or not the word for the thing is the word that most people use for that thing. So, like, if a term for something is consistent within... So it's like a jargon of genesis? Yes, exactly. Okay. It can also mean something more along the lines of semiotics, which is the study yeah. of symbols and their meaning. So, like, yeah. things that stand for concepts. Yeah. Okay. So we'll get to the wine terminology uh, in a moment. And, and perhaps the termhood thereof. Uh, but first, hmm. how do anthropologists study how people think about wine? Uh, they they ask people about wine. Sure do. I, I, I have in my most recent round of research, I've like come up against like the the possibility of doing like oral history. And I'm just like, I could just like <sighs> ask someone. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, I just a living this, person. This is new to me. I'd be like, I could just be like, "What's up?" <laughs> like so. That's, they, so they could tell me. Yeah. So <laughs> what? So yeah. So I'm <laughs> great. I just I just learned about this. You can ask people about the thing mm. you want to understand, and they might mm. tell In you. In this case, wine. Wine. So here's an excerpt of the abstract of a paper published in June 2022 in the International so Journal of Gastronomy and Food Science, uh, the title of which is The Semiotics of Wine, Analysis of Wine-Related Cultural Consensus in Two Spanish Wine-Producing Regions. In, um, case, you're, in case you hear that title and go, what? <laughs> so... Um, Researchers collected data from two distinct wine regions in Spain to get a sense of how different communities viewed and spoke about their varieties in a cultural context. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which... So in this case, like like the the wine varieties are very sort of culturally important in the same way that I think of like pepperoni rolls in West Virginia. Like... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like people are really attached to cuisine or or drinks from their region because it's a it's a form of heritage Mm -hmm. and and it's something that like unesco recognizes and it's Mm -hmm. and it's something that um pepperoni rolls i don't think we've gotten unesco involved in pepperoni rolls but but like but food ways as as a form of heritage um and and sometimes they consider it like intangible heritage because it's sort of the knowledge of how to produce something in a traditional how to make way. The thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, but then there's also uh, the other side of that coin is protected areas of oh the, uh, the uh, like what is it? appellation like, contrôlée. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, it's so, not champagne unless it comes from yeah. Champagne so like other than giving yeah. us the like incredibly dead joke about things that. Otherwise, it's sparkling beepity boop. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, cool. Um, so, the you you've got that, but it's but it's also like that is to protect, sort of the like it's to protect sort of the, the ability to make money off of and to authentically do these things that are, um, that are local cultural, um, 
mm-hmm. institutions. And so that you'll see that on, um, you see, I mean, I, I see that on wine and I see that on cheese and I don't know that I do a lot of other Those things. Those are the big ones. I don't yeah. know that I consume uh, a lot of other things that are like, um, uh, yeah, that, but, that are you know. governed by that. Oh, uh, like ham. Like different types of Humble. cured cured meats, you sometimes yeah. see that yeah. where it's it's a um, it's a it, confirmation it's a that it was made there by people who were trained in the traditional style and also mm-hmm. the raw ingredients uh, yeah. because some of that Came stuff is informed. Yeah. Like I mean, especially with wine, where you have like terroir and stuff like that. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, we will get to yeah. So I. I am going to write to UNESCO <laughs> for bonjour. Salut. <laughs> uh, uh, le le roule pepperoni. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, um, uh, yeah. So, um, so it's something that like you can have. What I think is a very <laughs> okay. I'm going to like really project onto this. Um, I think the Please. good thing of having like pride and attachment to your own sort of uh, food ways, um, mm-hmm. or you can be snobby or elitist and, and sort of like the fact that it's like from an exotic place is what matters kind of thing to yeah. be like, this is real champagne. Cause it's like from, cause it's from there, from Champagne and Champagne. <laughs> I was like Campania, and I was like, no. I mean, same, no, but Italian, but, but different. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So it can be, it can go either way, and it sounds like this article dealt more with the former, with people talking this about their own. Specifically looked at, yeah. So this like, article specifically looked at the language around and associations with the wine from these two historically wine producing region so rioja wine is very well known and uh tarragona also is a big wine producing region so they wanted to be like hey how do you see your wine yeah how do you see yeah so let's uh here you go i'm quoting now we -hmm. conducted seven focus groups made up of consumers non-consumers wine experts wine sellers, wine producers, and healthcare professionals. We also use the free listing technique to obtain data, so words or short phrases, study participants associated with the word wine. Uh, These words and phrases were organized and analyzed digitally. Uh, The results showed that wine is a complex referent that evokes potentially contradictory images. While the context in which wine is consumed also has a value from which it cannot be separated. <laughs> so the idea of complex referent is the is the relevant thing here because it is very, very difficult to describe things like taste and smell. And especially for something like wine, which is complex because of fermentation yeah. and has a lot of characteristics that someone might describe based on how they specifically taste it. Yeah. Right. And so they were kind of trying to not only associate uh, sort of what you feel when you think about wine from your region, but also trying to get at this sort of very complex way that people talk about wine to one another yeah. because of the, the complexity um, and the difficulty in in expressing the taste and smell. Yeah, because there are like there are differences in terms of like the sensory. Sure. Yeah. Like, from person to person. Yeah. And how you perceive the the taste and smell. Yeah. It's going to be different depending on who's tasting and smelling. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that, yeah. That's that part. But then but then there's the cultural part. Yeah. In the La Rioja region, aspects related to local traditions and identity about Rioja, Rioja wine, culture, land, gastronomy, good food, relationships, friends, family, celebrations, and senses, pleasure, aroma, taste. Uh, in Tarragona, the most abundant aspects were relationships, friends, and gastronomy, followed by senses, aroma, pleasure, enjoyment, flavor, and tradition, wineries, family, culture. So there were different sort of uh, priorities in in the types of associations people had, depending on the region. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, thank you. 
Anthropology. It's everywhere. Okay, let's talk wine terms. Uh yes. I love doing this. So, I love I love this is another this thing. Is, so just just like how I went and got you love like a fragrance whole, notes. I love fragrance notes, but just like I got a whole like classical education because I thought that's what smart people did, like educated people did. I went really hard on learning a whole lot about like Belgian beer and mm. wine because i thought that's what like cultured people did and so boy if my chickens aren't coming home to roost now cuz i know a lot about this <laughs> well i hope you know things in the section balance to bunghole cuz these are they're alphabetically listed and like sectioned off weirdly um <laughs> so We've got acidity to astringent, balance to bunghole, cellar to cuvee, demi-sec to full-bodied, herbaceous to must, negotiant to plonk, ratings to typicity, and ullage to young. So I, th- I thought we could just um, kind of pick a few terms and, yeah. and describe them. And I just like there are so many terms involved. And I think a, a lot of it has to do with how important wine is to people. And also compounded with that, how difficult it is to describe flavors and smells. Yeah. So Ullage like, is what I was doing quite a bit of a couple of weeks ago. Ullage. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so Amber, go first. Pick pick something. Here we go. Lisey. Uh, Lisey. Can you spell that? Uh, that is spelled L E. E S Y, and that is a tasting term uh, for the rich aromas and smells that result from wine resting on its lees. So, like the sediments and in so the bottle. Lees is sediment consisting of dead yeast cells, grape oh, pulp, boy. seed, and other grape matter that accumulates during fermentation. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I'd like to share with you, Foxy. Oh, a term that describes the musty odor and flavor of wines made from Vitus labrusca, Vitus labrusca, a common North American varietal. So it's like 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 foxes. It's got some musk. It's got some must, which is. Yeah. Unfermented grape juice, including seeds, skins and stems. That's what must is. Typicity is is one of those things that. We were just talking about a tasting term that describes how well a wine expresses the characteristics inherent to the variety of grape. Uh, we'll get into that also in just a little bit. Typicity. Yeah. Um, I didn't know Ullage. Yeah. That was the Angel Share. Is that no, just in distilled no, liquors? No, no, no. The Angel Share is what evaporates. That's what's lost. Yeah, ullage I understand that. is ullage is oh, the just the space, space. Left so it behind. is okay so so the angel share creates the ullage by evaporating out yeah I design so, wine glass very helpfully <laughs> a drinking vessel specially designed for tasting wine <laughs> there's like a whole wheel of wine tastes and oh, don't worry we're getting there okay great because those are the ones that i'm really into those are the ones that i love yeah. using and like ruining the experience for the people around me um, yeah yeah <laughs> so i would like you to click on the next link uh, we're going to go to winefolly.com oh yes let's talk about where wine flavors oh, come from wine hubris wine flavor yes is something that as long as the the vintners aren't adding flavor to their wines, which is also something that, that happens. Uh, yeah. Wine flavors are like, if you're like, oh, I'm tasting green pepper and hints of yeah. mm, cherry. Um, those are things that, that arise through fermentation because there are certain molecular compounds that break down or show up in the wine as it ferments. Yeah. Um, and so wine flavors in general can, much like when we talked about the Neanderthal perfume yes. and you just like went real deep into flavor, uh, scent profiles. Yeah. Wine flavors can be organized into three primary groups. We've got fruit slash floral slash herbal. That's one. We've got spice mm. and we've got earth. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about some of the chemical components of yes. those. Which which most interests you when you well, when you go looking for a wine? What do you look for? So besides a pretty label. Okay, shut up. <laughs> 
It's true. I do, too. Um, I I like, so I tend to like um, things that are a little bit uh, minerally. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, you should try uh, chuckily. Yeah. Yeah. So I like a little bit of, I like a little bit of mineral. Um, I also, I'm, I'm really into like more herbaceous things. Big fan of the terpenes. Um, and I, well, let's, let's talk about fruit and floral and herbal then. Yeah. Yeah. Like I don't, um, some sulfur compounds are bad, like the smell of wet wool. That's a bad smell. Yeah. Um, so but I did, I mentioned, yeah. <laughs> I, so I mentioned green pepper. Yeah. So that's, that's in the pyrazine family. Mm-hmm. You get the herbaceous character. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also one of the fundamental aroma compounds in chocolate, interestingly. But so if you, if you like a Sauvignon Blanc, like those grassy yeah, kind of fresh that's why I like, flavors. you know this about me. I like sort of grassy. You also like rose and lavender. Those are the terpenes. Yeah. So... Listeners, if you if you are of age in this country or wherever you're listening from, or you know, as long as you do it safely, um, if you encounter Amber, <laughs> yeah, so you can look for a Gewürztraminer. Yeah, you can look for a well, a no, that, like not so much for me because those are a little too sweet, and that's like the lychee. They can be yeah, sweet. They're not always. Yeah, thiols. That those are really interesting to me because there are thiols that, um, <laughs> in tiny amounts fruity, delicious. In large amounts, it smells like death because thiols, those are what uh, natural gas companies sent their product with, sent like natural gas with so that you will smell it because humans can smell like one, you know, one part per however many million of thiols because it's, it's a smell associated. It's also like the smell of skunk spray has thiols. So like that really awful sort of sweet skunky smell. Um, Unpleasant, but in tiny amounts, you get grapefruit and black currant. Like chemistry is wild. I like cannot sense believe perception, that flavor perception is wild. Like my, so there's a there's a natural gas well, like mm-hmm. on on this hill, um, and it's dinky. When the wind is wrong, mm. and you got like the like awful natural gas smell coming at you, you got the drunk deer in the backyard. <laughs> got the oh. sasquatch like out in the out in the woods oh that was yeah i was doing a sasquatch actually it's the same it wasn't it's the same noise it's a drunk deer they're just like yelling at each other like bro that's the bro. that's the noise that you make oh. when you do like when you do bow hunting and you hold really still but you you need to you need the deer to look at you um and so they go ah <laughs> yep so the deer's like what like I don't think it's like a deer sound. I think it's like a proven sound to make a deer. No, go, it's what? like me going like to my cats to get them to look at me for a photo. Ah, that's how I'm gonna get closer <laughs> to look at me now. Um, but I, that's so wild to me that that little bit of. But that's the same thing that like, you know, like like parm smells like feet and vomit. Yeah, yeah, it's the it's same. Like it's the same exact context. chemical, just in different amounts okay, or, gonna, like, or context, like yeah, depending what you're thinking. I'm going to go out there even... and be like, Vermentino. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> Great. Uh, and f- finally, uh, we've got wine chemistry. We've done wine, anthropo- wine anthropology. Rosie asked for underwater wine. And Amber... I am confused. Rosie, I hope this is what you meant, because honestly, I was on more solid footing with shipwreck wine, but this is fun, too. This is underwater wine aging, which is sort of a a newish niche trend started around 2015, uh, a little before 2015. This is from decanter.com. I'm so sorry. I'm still stuck in the peppercorn. The only way out is through, Anna. I just got (laughs) to... That's fine. I'm going to tell you about underwater wine as you um, make your way through. You good? Your ears listening? No. Okay. Okay. I got there. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Maybe it's a marketing move. Uh, Many, I'm quoting from decanter.com. Many participants say they are keen to experiment with aging in a new environment in nature. Space. And there is a, not yet, give it, give it five years. Give it five years. There is evidence of underwater conditions affecting a wine's flavor. So this, I mean, this basically is hmm, uh, like in a, this makes it collectible. (laughs) 
right? Like, you cool. know, this is different. <laughs> Throw money at it. And it's inspired by shipwreck wines, like the idea of a, a, a beautiful bottle of wine nestled on the ocean floor and, and you know, discovered and still drinkable somehow, but not, you know, shipwreck. Don't drink a shipwreck wine is what I'm saying. Oh, no, but these projects include Veuve Clicquot, Submerging Champagne, actual champagne. Yeah. Appellation Contrôlée oh, yeah. in the Baltic Sea. And uh, Gaia Winery, which is a Greek winery, trialing bottles matured beneath the Mediterranean. Um, there's also a, a, a vineyard or a, a vintner, uh, L'Arrivée Aubryon, that's difficult to say from uh, a Bordeaux vintner, aged a barrel of its 2009 vintage partially submerged in the sea. And uh, Croatia's Edivo winery has aged bottles in amphorae under the ocean. So this is the wild thing that I, um, that I don't understand. Okay. Why? (sighs) Is that the thing you don't understand? What is asserted In granted, I'm not an expert on this. I'm not even close. Like I read a few articles on it, in a in a sort of baffled, interested kind. Archaeologists <laughs> baffled. What they what what Vintner seemed to say is like nothing is coming in or out. The wine is sealed, and yet there is some quality that changes the wine because it's aging underwater. Is it so? Well, for some of them, so, is it maybe pressure? But not the one that's partially submerged, because that just sounds like... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So I'm going to quote again from from okay. just a Cantor article. Some tasters have talked about the complexity of the wines and also noted a saline character, for instance. But Bettinger, so a, a, a vintner, emphasized that nothing comes in or out of the bottles while they are under the sea. So like... Is something happening where it's like diffusing through the cork or is it a kind of placebo effect where someone is like, oh, this wine is from under the sea. It's so briny. I can taste the sand. Yeah. So Ugh. attributes of underwater wine. Yeah, still so they know that well, fish poop in that? Attributes of the underwater wines include greater intensity of color. And a okay. slower evolution of the wine's hue over time, which like I can see that because they're like light doesn't, depending on how deep you go, light doesn't penetrate. And that can affect how the grapes or how the how the wine uh, tastes when it comes to smell. Allegedly, the wines have greater intensity and tend to show fewer herbaceous and vegetable aromas. So you would not be a fan. With accented, so they took sorry, out the with accent- they took out the herbaceous stuff and put in the fish poop. They put in fruit, accentuated primary fruit and floral notes, uh, with a a silky mouthfeel. Yeah. So, ha, what? What? Rosie? Is it what? <laughs> Is it? I mean, I don't think we're going to reach a conclusion here. I just like this is interesting. Why are people doing this? I'd like to understand more, but I don't. So, are there are are some of those winemakers that you described? This is their thing, or are they existing and trying it? Because, like, yeah, Kiliko, like obviously is not. Yeah, I mean, like, just to like a to have a like exclusive batch to sell yeah because that's always popular or just because i i do think that that a lot of vintners and a lot of people who who make wine are like interested in the craft and like curious about things that affect you know they're just like trying stuff out and i can respect that but like also a lot of this seems like aimed at very wealthy people who like to collect wine there's a lot of issues involving like regulatory processes. You can't just like put it in the ocean and then be like, eh, it's fine, FDA. It definitely wasn't near anything. You could say it's like a harmful. Like a wellness product. Sure. And then it's fine. It's moon juice, baby. Put it on the moon. Aged on the moon. Let's mm-hmm. go back to the moon. That's next. That's next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another callback to our Dirt After Dark episode. Yeah. I think think it might be time to put a cork in this episode. Fine. So uh, we've we've reached the Lees. We're resting on our Lees. 
<laughs> and our laurels. So it's time to put the wine glasses in the sink and ignore them until the morning and then just say, I bought them at Ikea. It's fine if they break. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll be back soon with more. Until then, mm-hmm. find us. We're at thedirtpod.com um, or we're on any of your pod players of choice. And we're also on social media. We're there. We're yeah. Out there. Specifically, you can find us on Facebook as the dirt podcast on twitter we're at dirt podcast and on instagram we are at the dirt pod and hey uh just one more time it would be really 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 helpful please and thank you if you went ahead and left us some five star reviews plentiful five star reviews so that more folks can find us in our new form yeah yeah well thank you again rosie yeah thank you for sponsoring this episode this was fun to learn about all y'all for listening hey We love you. Hey. Well. Take care. Bye. Goodbye. Cheers. Salute. Salute.